0: Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And thank you for listening to the Evoking History podcast. Today, I am joined by a medieval historian and master of all things witchy and halloweeny, Sarah Dunn. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: I am doing great. Can I have that engraved somewhere for eternity for me?
0: Sure. We can We can work that out. Perhaps I, pumpkin I, carving. I don't know.
1: That, that would be on brand.
0: It would. It would. So, I, again, thank you for joining me, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure to be here. So let's see. I have two master's degrees from first from the University of Louisville in Kentucky. That one is in European history. Uh, My second is from Northwestern University. That is in medieval history. And I specialize in witches and demons and all things heresy. So, you know, this is the perfect time to be interviewing me. October is my best month.
0: It is. I'm sure you're very busy. I have to ask, starting off, uh, and we'll talk about what initially drew that to you. But why to essentially, uh, how to ask this? Essentially, these are both history degrees. They're just slightly different time frames. Yes. Why did you go back to get the second when you already had the first?
1: Well, I originally went for the PhD program, but it just wasn't ultimately a good fit. So, and also I. I just love school. I know. I'm a complete nerd. So any chance I could get to just get another degree and be in more classes and do more papers and research, for some reason, I am into that. So sure. what can I say?
0: <laughs> okay. What drew you? I mean, I guess it makes sense if you got your initial degree in European history that you would do medieval history, which is just old school European history, (laughs) essentially. Um, What drew you to these heretical ideas and why do you you study them?
1: Well, I I guess it goes back to uh, undergrad, which was also at the University of Louisville. Uh, I knew I was gonna do history, but believe it or not, I originally thought I was gonna do revolutionary war, which is about as, Different from what I do now is like two things can be, uh, but I had I was required to take intro to medieval history course, and by the end of like syllabus day, I knew that this I was hooked. This was it. Yeah, and then it just kind of I like to say it kind of just like fell into my lap because I had no idea that you could study witches. I mean, I never really would have thought about it. I doubt many people would either. Um, But I was working with uh, the professor who taught my first intro to medieval history class, who later became my thesis advisor and mentor. And I started getting really interested in um, canon law, medieval canon law, uh, medieval theology, and uh, I know, exciting, right? Uh, But of, of all the things, you know, canon law in general is fascinating, but I always found it interesting when they started talking about what I like to say, the creepy stuff. Yeah. Um, Because, shockingly, there is so much medieval debate about all of these topics. And I think it's such a rich uh, philosophical discourse that it just, it got me. And then... In junior year of undergrad, another professor offered a course on early modern witch trials. And then she ended up becoming my other thesis advisor and mentor. And so from that class on, I was like, well, if this is a thing that you can actually study, I'm in. (laughs) And then it just kind of went from there.
0: I think that's really interesting because I know a few medieval historians. We, uh, Dr. Leslie Knox, who's our new department chair here at Marquette, um, she is a medieval historian and she does, Oh, well, I'm going to get this wrong, but she does a religious order, a woman's religious order in medieval Italy. Oh. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, and, but most of the people that I know, and there's been a few medievalists who've come through here, even though we don't really offer it at the PhD level, um, due to some sort of religious history whether it's looking at a specific order like she does or um we have one person who recently left here to to pursue his phd in medieval history and he is looking at the teutonic knights um, and emotion. so the history of emotions examination of the teutonic knights so that combination of religion because it was such an all-encompassing thing does make sense and i'm glad you brought up the witch trials because there was a lot of that and then there's not only the witch trials but various i don't know you can school me on this um, my sense of it from somebody who has an interest in medieval history from a child from La More, the author and all that shit oh yes
1: uh, favorites
0: yes um But there is also like vampire trials and werewolf trials and all other kinds of not necessarily inquisitor trials, but stuff that we would now associate with the Inquisition. So my roundabout way of asking this question, (laughs) I guess, then is what specifically about, because to me, when you say that you're studying witch trials and you say I was going to do the Revolutionary Warrior, that makes sense because of Salem and the, the witch trials over here that were much later than the European witch trials. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, what what was it about that topic in general that really lit that fire for you?
1: Well, at the risk of sounding completely cliche, I've always been fascinated with it since childhood. Um, so there's always been that kind of kernel of just, oh, this is so cool. I can't believe I get to do this. Um, but academically speaking, Um, you know like I said I started really interested in medieval canon law and um, then I started you know veering off towards medieval heresy um, because and I hate to get uh, I don't know epistemological or anything but
0: please uh, feel free
1: (laughs) but like heresy and canon law they kind of overlap in so many different areas of history. I mean, it's obviously religious history, but it's also um, legal history, cultural, social. um, And then in the case of witch trials, it's gender studies and gender history. Um, So I've always been one to kind of try and incorporate things. I really like um, taking information and sources from all elements and so, once I started getting into that and kind of veering off towards heresy, which as I say it out loud, out of context sounds crazy, um, <laughs> I mean,
0: as a heretic, I, I completely understand.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm glad you appreciate that. Um, but as I started veering off towards heresy, um, like you mentioned, the vampire trials, the werewolf trials, and not to not to brag, but I have done a lot of stuff about medieval vampires and werewolves and nope. ghosts and everything you know because Why stop at witches and demons when you could just cover everything supernatural?
0: Get that whole cornucopia going.
1: Oh yeah, I'm a jack of all trades. Um, But once you realize then that heresy in the medieval mindset is not just, um, you know, different religious orders, it also includes witchcraft. It includes um, vampires. Oh my goodness, sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. It's okay. Um, (laughs) But it includes all of these things because heresy, just by definition, is, you know, an opposing belief, Mm -hmm. uh, opposing God. And pretty early on, like 12th century or so, uh, you know, we have Cathars, we have um, all kinds of heresies but the Cathars especially they had this view of religious dualism so God and Satan equal and opposing forces and that then got turned into kind of a segue into witchcraft so was the idea that you know well these Cathars they're they're not worshipping God they're worshipping Satan because they say Satan is on equal level as god so you know obviously then they're satan worshipers um but then the idea was proposed by a lot of these um academic theological scholars these demonologists um well if they're worshiping satan then what are they getting out of it because there's this idea of a transactional nature i think between who you're worshiping and then what you get for the worship um And so then it kind of became, well, if they're worshiping Satan, then they're getting magic in return. They're getting uh, a way of influencing their outside world. And so heresy and this really intellectual idea of um, various religious ideologies turns into an exploration of witchcraft, which also turns into anything related to demons at all. So in, I don't know if you're familiar with your uh, medieval werewolf lore, um, I assume- Not as up on
0: it as I used to be, but.
1: Well, this is the perfect month for it. Yes Um, So there's this idea that even werewolves are having a transaction with a demon in order to get their powers, or they're tricked into putting on a demonic wolf cloak, and they put it on, and as soon as they put it over their shoulders, they turn into a werewolf. Um, there's some really great stories that are very dramatic in that regard. Well,
0: that's alright. I might have a, oh, yeah. them a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, that's my long, long answer in way of saying once I started researching and learning about canon law and then researching and learning about heresy, it just kind of flowed into it. It was a natural progression that I followed and I think it was a natural progression in the minds of a lot of uh, theological and legal scholars at the time as well. So, I'm not saying I'm Aquinas, but. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but
0: uh, (laughs) Aquinas. So uh, my question then is, because I've talked to some people who do a lot of Western esotericism Mm -hmm. in the 18th and 19th centuries. And there, there, there is these practices, these people who are practicing occult traditions that they have cobbled together either from the Greek or the Egyptian and some medieval sources. But in some ways, that is treated as intellectual history of philosophy. So it's a different philosophy. It's like, well, I'm taking the church tradition and inverting it as a thought experiment. There aren't as many. Well, there, there definitely aren't as many people out there who are actually getting burned at the stake for being a witch or various other tremendously terrible punishments as described in the Malifus Malacharum, um, which I actually own a copy of. And, and
1: shockingly, I do too. <laughs>
0: shockingly, you probably have the much fancier two volume I, version. I, but.
1: Have, I have my Malleus Maleficarum, Compendium Maleficarum, uh, Costumes <laughs> for Alice, you know, you name it, I got it.
0: Uh, <laughs> my Inquisition shelf, how yeah, to be well, an Inquisition.
1: <laughs> you know, but it literally is a shelf. so there. Oh, no, yeah,
0: a- no, I believe it. I, I'm looking at my own various interest shelves over here. You, it's like this is it. my shelf on genocide. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs>
1: um, to Historian.
0: Yeah, (laughs) things that make you bad at parties, number one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. but I I wonder then, because when you look at the American witch trials, the prevailing thought is there were no actual witches. This, This was all hysteria, that women were being killed because of various economic or sexual pressures that were being played upon them or fear of Native Americans, various insecurities coming together. In your experience, in your studies, do you see it the same way in the witch trials in Europe, or were there these actually, because there were old traditions that probably still had, whether it was just hearth wisdom that was being passed along, or people who were actually still participating in the various pre-Christian pagan religions, that some of that might have carried over, were there actual witches, quote unquote?
1: <sighs> That's such a good question, and I'm going to give such a long, convoluted answer for it, so I apologize in advance. but um, in short no but in a broader sense (laughs) yes um essentially there are of course still um like you said hearth wisdoms there are elements of that that are not necessarily treated as a religious element but more so as just a part of the culture um so you know in italy in particular during the renaissance there were a lot of women who would Uh, tell fortunes with beans um I've tried so hard to figure out what beans I could use but I still have yet to figure that out (laughs) but it it wasn't something that was considered religious it wasn't something that they were actively thinking of as witchcraft right just well my grandmother did it and her grandmother did it and this is just kind of how we do things
0: So kind of Um, a voodoo kind of thing
1: yeah it's it's kind of like now you know um when i took my Arabic classes, like my Arabic teacher taught us how to read tea leaves and how to read coffee grounds. You know, it's just something that's more cultural than I think it ever is effectively religious. Um, so in a sense, there are those elements, but witchcraft as a whole, um, no, there, I, there were not like actual witches. It was more so, um, breaking traditional customs and gender norms and societal expectations um than it ever was anything about specifically religion yeah and um you know here's where i always like to make a big distinction between sorcery and witchcraft hmm. um because it's i feel like sometimes now we kind of use those interchangeably um but back in the middle ages and into the early modern period they were two very distinctive separate things that had two very distinctive sets of uh people who were you know quote unquote following them so sorcery is considered to be an intellectual pursuit um meaning that if you were a sorcerer you were wealthy because you could afford all the books um well and literate <laughs> so obviously there are two strikes right there um and oftentimes you know you had to have been very well off very wealthy have a lot of land because you had to have the time to read all of these arcane books to learn how to summon a demon so sorcerers were almost exclusively um noble men um but then later Like I said, when witchcraft gets converted into a heresy, uh, witchcraft then is a transactional deal that you have with Satan. So a witch is just someone, anyone who either was tricked into making a deal with a demon or with Satan or who actively and willingly entered into this arrangement. So magic is in both, but they're very separate sets of people. And as you can, I'm sure see by the definition of witchcraft, it's much easier for women to be considered witches and men to be considered sorcerers. Um, Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, no, because that leads me to uh, perhaps a foolish question, but one that I feel that I must (laughs) ask because I'm ignorant in that way. The church had demonologists and people who were investigating these fell acts, What separates them from a sorcerer by this definition?
1: I mean, that's a really good question. And I would say um, the fact that they didn't call themselves that. (laughs) (laughs) I know that sounds really glib, but, uh, you know, when you're specifically telling everyone around you, I am a demonologist. I can find witches. I study this so therefore I can I study it so I can help you. Mm-hmm. I study it so I can save you. I don't study it for me, I study it for God. Um and I I think that's really the only difference because if we think about it, I mean yeah, they're basically the same subset wealthy yeah. men who are literate <laughs> and have availability books. Um but you know it, it reminds me of us i don't want to say one of my favorite people in history a unique individual in history uh matthew hopkins he basically self declared himself as the witch finder general of england um and when you think about it he was just going around from town to town like mm, no this woman's a witch burn her like <laughs> he he self-professed to have put at least three hundred women to death
0: for witchcraft. Holy crap.
1: Yeah, he was a truly horrible person, but a truly fascinating person because no one gave him this authority. They were just—he just woke up one day and said, "Yep, God says I am, so therefore I am." And uh. so, I mean, yeah, there's really not <laughs> the only distinction is that they say they are a demonologist and not a sorcerer.
0: Sure, sure. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. And they also have the weight of the church behind them, at least in some cases. not This guy, probably not so much. He, yeah, he it, was maybe later.
1: popular, believe it or not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, does the historical record even begin to match his claim or was that just because, I mean, you know, we see oh, yeah. this. OK, well, I, I was just curious. Just, and the thing that that immediately reminded me of where was old western gunslingers or, or things like that where yeah. they would say oh well I've killed so x number of men and I don't even count Native Americans or whatever <laughs> um, but often those numbers would be or, or modern day serial killers is also what I think of
1: yeah. where
0: they, they will claim so many and we we find evidence of so many and we just uh, hope is the word I will use because we, we it really is kind of hope that they yeah. also didn't kill a whole bunch more people that we don't know about.
1: Right. And with most of these demonologists, um, or these witch finders, um, cause the demonologists were more intellectual. Um, but with most of these witch finders, like of, they absolutely did that. Of course they would come into a new town and, you know, back in the witch finders were really prevalent in like the 16th, 17th centuries, uh, in England, especially. And, you know, these towns aren't really communicating with one another. This is still a time when most people would never leave three miles from where they were born. Um, So So the South today. (laughs) As someone from Kentucky, yes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, they, they, the witch finder would roll into town and he, it's kind of a snake oil salesman sort of deal. Um, You know, telling everyone i will rid you of these evil witches these evil forces i will save your community um and they were especially popular (laughs) after any sort of bad harvests or or, you know if the cows suddenly started dying off which again is usually linked to a bad harvest Mm -hmm. or um you know any sort of uh bad, brainstorm, any sort of like natural disaster, um, which I know it sounds strange to say a bad harvest is a natural disaster for modern listeners. Um, but when that's literally the difference between life and death, it was utmost important. So if they have something catastrophic happen and then someone rolls into town and says, the reason this happened is because there are witches among you. And if you pay me just a small fee, I can fix it for you. Yeah. Um, it, it, not to be, uh, I don't know, that Disney person, but it reminds me of like Ursula and Ariel in The Little Mermaid. You know, all I need is your voice. Like all you need <laughs> to do is pay me, you know, what amounts to like a year's worth of wages for you. But don't worry, I'll fix it. It's fine. It's It's a unique business model. <laughs>
0: I don't know that it's that unique. I <laughs> he says staring at Televangelists but Wait, um
1: yeah we need the witches into the
0: mix. Oh yeah, 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 sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um okay. Well I mean sadly none of that is super surprising, but it's all very informative and, and so um and this is somewhat an unfair question, so I will apologize ahead of time. But that makes me think that man, there must have been a true rise or maybe this is early enough that that really hadn't started taking root. What is it like 583 when the um, Hela and Iceland erupts and it's the coldest year on record for like the next century and yeah. you know um, really destroys crops for damn near a decade. Uh, uh, was there a big rise in this outside of that or was that slightly before this really kind of took up?
1: I mean, there are definitely pockets that pop up. Um, I mean, no surprise, things kind of picked up after the Black Death. Yeah,
0: Um, I'm sure the plague (laughs) did, yeah.
1: And you know, um, not to be too, uh, not that I'm mentioning a plague apropos of anything else, um, but (laughs) (laughs) the, um, the Black Death, especially when you look at Um, imagery and literature during and directly after there's a lot of elements that we today would associate like oh that looks like a witch um just because when you have people like dropping in the streets like flies you know the closest thing you can think of to figure out what's going on is some sort of evil forces at work um Or you have the opposite and it's, we were evil and God is punishing us, you
0: know. Yeah, the flag punch and stuff.
1: Right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, after that, you see an uptick. Uh, After, you know, if a town has a particularly bad harvest, like I said, or fires, um, or sometimes it would even be small things, especially when you're in the smaller villages. You know, one family had three cows and the woman next door Got mad at them and she, you know, yelled at him and said, "I hope your cow dies." And then two months later, the cow dies. I mean, it might not be on the same level as volcanic eruption, but you know, it's in a way a disaster. And then that's when you have the witches come in. Um, so I think there's definitely a relation. Just because if everything is going well, you're not going to assume witches. <laughs> Um, you know, I think that's something that time throughout, like, it, it just, when everything's great, why would you think about witches?
0: Today's a great day. Let's thank the witches, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you, witches, for this <laughs> wonderful bounty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that makes, uh, there is something about the contractual nature of this that I want to get to, but I just can't come up with these other fascinating questions. <laughs> um, Me too. Because there is when you bring up the plague, one of the things that immediately comes to mind, unfortunately, is uh, other than the sheer death toll and how trem- tremendously terrible it must have been, the yeah. pogroms that went on. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Right. And I don't necessarily associate that with witch hunts, but it seems like they are at least collinear, I mean, if nothing yeah. else.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it Essentially, we can consider in a sense, to the medieval eye, anyone who's not properly Catholic is a degree of heretic. Mm
0: -hmm. So,
1: you know, any type of non-Catholic belief. So that can be, you know, a Cathar, a Jewish person, that can be a witch, that can be a Muslim, that can be any of these things. And especially when you see heresy being linked with witchcraft, it also starts incorporating a lot of, um, well, inversions on the traditional, uh, traditional religious senses. So uh, you start getting these depictions of witches' sabbaths where they have stolen a communion wafer, and then they stomp on it, or they. <laughs> and and I will say. Um, there are some amazing woodcuts of these where you have these witches in dramatic clothing just like stomping on a, you know, communion wafer. Um, sure. Or you have, you know, they will like spit and like, that'll be a rejection of the communion wine. Um, or <laughs> my personal favorite uh, is the osculum infame, which is um like... The, the evil kiss, the bad kiss. Um, and you know how in churches you greet one another, you know, you kiss your their cheeks. Well, this, uh, <laughs> you essentially kiss uh, the behind of a demon or Satan. Um
0: yeah, so I've it, seen some of those woodcuts I didn't know what it was, but I've seen yeah, some of
1: those Yeah, them. well, now you know. That I do, thank you. Um, and so it started with Cathars and Knights Templar, also big time with the knights templar
0: yeah i want to talk about that considering that their entire castle got raided and the leader was burned at the stake and that's where we get fired at the 13th from so and, or one of the rumors will, from it
1: i will mildly go on a tangent and say that philip the fourth of france who is the one who did that mm-hmm. i have an irrational historian hatred for um partially for that i love a rational
0: historian hatred so yes i will let you go on that tangent yeah
1: well, it's partially for that and partially because he smeared the name of like the coolest Pope ever. So Boniface Eighth may his uh, name be more popular now, but he was like constantly trying to accuse people of heresy. Um, and actually, I will take it back to a relevant point. It's not just a random diatribe on my part. Um, during the reign of Philip IV, when they are charging the Knights Templar, and they are charging, um, poor Pope Boniface VIII, um, they kind of come up with this boilerplate template of charges that they lay on any of the heretics, and then they also transfer to laying on to witches, and Mm -hmm. it's basically four things. It's sodomy, blasphemy, sorcery, and heresy, um, so what a, what a concoction, um, (laughs) but you, 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 he started labeling that on the Knights Templar and the Cathars and then it just becomes the easy thing to throw those four charges at anyone and that's another way that they just start getting linked is I blame Philip the Fourth, and I will die on that hill. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
0: So now back to the transactional for a moment, yeah. although I might circle back to the Templars at some point. Um,
1: I am here to circle back to the Templars.
0: So the really, as you have stated, that there really is this focus uh, and it's primarily women and it's also transactional, whether by being tricked by a perfidious demon or other covenant holder with the devil or demon, or whatever. Um, or by intentionally making this contract so the the idea of this covenant mm. the, the the contract between the power the otherworldly power and the the mortal and i have always found it interesting hey i think that that's where it, kind of the concept and maybe it comes from an earlier time i don't know because I, I haven't researched this but this the whole deal with the devil thing Yes. seems to kind of to to spawn out of that that they must be getting something because otherwise why would you do it we get mm-hmm. salvation and all these otherworldly things if you are a clergy anyway in the medieval mm-hmm. times for <laughs> for worshiping christ so they must get something for rejecting christ and worshiping this other thing yeah, okay. but this transactional power does to come with all these ill-defined magical powers that are impossible to prove but also these defined physical characteristics that are supposed to be um, side effects of this, you know, EVL transaction. <laughs> Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Oh, that's essentially what I wrote my first master's thesis on. So I absolutely can talk about that. Uh, stop me when I start getting annoying about it. So essentially, uh, there's this idea that in order to prove witchcraft, you have to have some way of proving beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, particularly when you're in a witch trial. So they originally start with what we call ordeals, a trial by ordeal. Um, they were reserved in, you know, used in special circumstances, but that's when you have, you know, they, they, Put a crucifix in a fire, and then it gets hot. And then if you burn your hand, and if it doesn't fester and become gangrenous, then you're good, and God forgives you. And if it does, then well, <laughs> bad luck. Um, let's hope that your hand was clean. <laughs>
0: yeah, obviously you're a witch.
1: Yeah, well, you know, either way, you're you're not and you're not doing great. Um, yeah. And once those were outlawed, which I think a lot of people assume that just the Middle Ages were just full of people doing. Crazy torture stuff. Um, it was not like that. Um, the trial by ordeals were forbidden after the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. So, after that, they had to figure out some other physical way to prove the existence of witchcraft. Because if witchcraft is a physical act, which it was defined as, um, the Latin term is maleficium. Uh, which is just any like magic that's causing harm and trauma to the physical world. Um, So if maleficium, if witchcraft is physical, then there has to be a physical way to prove it. Um, And so after you get rid of the ordeals, then you have to replace it with statutory proof, um, which is a requirement of objective evidence in order to convict any criminal. And that's across the board for medieval trials you replace the ordeals with statutory proof and so when you think about it uh you know someone steals a cow well there's physical proof of that uh, someone you know stabbed somebody else in a barroom fight because you know it happens uh, there's physical proof of that but where do we get the physical proof of witchcraft Well, that's when you start having a lot of these demonologists just writing hundreds of pages of posits on this. You have the, I don't want to say invention, but the emergence of what we call the witch's mark, Mm
0: -hmm. which
1: is believed to be an invisible spot somewhere on the body that once you enter and sign away Uh, your soul to Satan. Uh, He places this mark on you as a way to like control you as a mark of like, this is my person. Or uh, especially in England, these were really popular. You have witches' teeth, which essentially was the idea that, well, witches, they have familiars. How do the familiars survive? Oh, well, the witches feed them uh, with their diabolical third nipple that blood you know because that's a thing that people come up with when they're just you know locked in a monastery writing for days and days at a time right. um <laughs> the mind wanders um but there there is a sort of logic to it i hate to say logic but you know what i mean um that there has to be some physical proof of this transaction and so uh In these trials, you start seeing a lot of strip searches, um, all done exclusively by midwives, um, you know, sequestered way. It's not like they're in the middle of the courtroom and they're like stripping this poor woman. Um, They were done, you know, sequestered exclusively by women. um, And they would take a small pin and prick around uh, on like the arms or on the head and if there was a spot where they pricked someone and it didn't hurt well that was the that was the witch's mark because the devil made it special so if you pricked it then it wouldn't hurt um you know and so that was considered in a way a physical scientific medical like in the medieval mind. (laughs)
0: Sure, no, I mean, yeah.
1: (laughs) To us, us, of course, it's not medical or scientific at all, Um, but it was an attempt. And then with the witches' teats, you know, I've read a ton of descriptions of these. Um, There's one of of Anne Bodenham in England, uh, and they make this really long description of, like, the size and the width, and it essentially, like, when you read it, it sounds like a skin tag or a mole, Um, but it's clear proof that, you know, this physical abnormality uh, is how she's feeding her familiars and how she gets her power, and, you know, this is tied into with their use of torture in the trials, Um, and again, I think people have this false idea that the middle ages everyone was so backward and they were torturing everyone all over the place you know you have those movies where there's a torture dungeon and mm-hmm. all this crazy stuff not to go off of it but that was actually an invention of like 18th and 19th century europeans um because i this is a little weird uh well not a little a lot weird um <laughs> torture porn became really in vogue. And so they had this uh, invention of all these horrible tortures that they put this poor defenseless woman into. And so the Iron Maiden was invented in like the 18th century for that, all these things. But in the Middle Ages, torture um, most of the time was either denial of sleep for days on end or until they confessed. Um, There was the threat of physical torture. A lot of times they would have someone in a room and then next door they would be like shouting and pretending that they were torturing someone else just to psychologically mess with this person and think that there was the threat of physical torture. Um, and of course there there were physical tortures. I'm not saying that there weren't, but it was much less common and it was very, very regulated. Um, I, there's a really long explanation of it by Friedrich Spee in the uh, 17th century, and he—he's a a man ahead of his time. Uh, he specifically was talking about how in witch trials you can't base accusations on just like, oh, well, nobody likes her in the village, and I heard that she did this, and nobody likes her anyway. And you can't use a threat of torture to induce uh, confession because that confession is tainted. And then he even specifically says, you know, if these poor women are being pulled in and threatened with torture, they'll confess to whatever they need to confess to, to not be tortured. Um, so, like I said, a man ahead of his time. Uh, I think we can still enjoy and read Friedrichsby because it's still useful today um but because of that physical belief in witchcraft and the physical belief that you could see it and you could find it and that was proof um that's where we started getting more widespread trials and a more be- like widespread belief in these things and then even in like the 17th century that's when you start getting the idea of like oh well witches are just ugly You know, that's where we have the idea of like um, witches as being old hags with like warts and the noses and stuff, um, which is just disrespectful. Um, But there's the idea that if the inside is ugly and evil, then it reflects on the outside and Satan can protect from that. Um, So, witchcraft at its core then just became all about physicality. Everything was all about physicality. And that's why it's completely different from sorcery because you lose the intellectual nature of it and it completely moves into the realm of the physical. I don't know if that really answers your question. I got a little...
0: (laughs) No, it does. But it brings up... I don't necessarily know this is a question. Um, And aside quickly, yeah, that uh, we would call that today enhanced interrogation.
1: Yes. uh, Yeah. the, The
0: similarities were...
1: Disturbing, impressive.
0: Yeah, um,
1: benefit from reading Friedrich's. b
0: <laughs> indeed. So, and I, I guess it's the the embodiment of witchcraft in the physical, as opposed to in the intellectual, like with sorcery, mm-hmm. um, that there is a carnality to it too. Yes, because uh, aside from the, the 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 witches teach and feeding the familiars, there are all these. Um, and then this might be, again, more of an American creation or a reflection, and an accurate statement of the time. But um, we've seen the woodcuts of the the women dancing nude with Satan in the forest and all this other stuff. That's uh,
1: not American. That's a long one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so the, a, a fear of female sexuality or the control thereof that is embodied in witchcraft accusations, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as witchcraft became witchcraft and not sorcery, uh, it started becoming more associated with uh, sexuality, um, or just with uh, carnality, I guess is a better way of phrasing it. Um, Because then it started to be believed that, you know, women are more predisposed to this, you know, men And I want to preface this by saying it was not just women that were being on trial for this. Uh, In fact, randomly enough, in Iceland, the majority of people put to death for witchcraft were men, but that's a more cultural thing, uh, cultural understanding of witchcraft.
0: And also (laughs) necropants.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff to get into in Iceland. Um, (laughs) That could be a whole podcast.
0: Uh, I did enjoy my visit to the Iceland... Uh, Witchcraft Museum. So,
1: oh, I'm not jealous at all. Um, <laughs> anyway, you'll have to tell me about that. Not jealous. Um, but there becomes this idea that you know, and it almost you see the seeds of it with the Cathars and with the Knights Templar, where you have the Ossulum and Fame, and they're you know, charged with sodomy, and it was essentially. The idea that they are doing the opposite of Christianity they're doing the inverse of all things good. What's the inverse of all things good? Well, they're having you know orgies with one another where the demon Baphomet comes in the form of a black cat and they all line up to kisses behind again, I just attribute some of these things to. Uh, they had too much time and too much imagination.
0: I mean, um, cats are pretty famous for showing you they're behind, so that could that, be part of it, too.
1: <laughs> Damn
0: it, Baphomet, show me no, your butt hole.
1: No. <laughs> what are you going to do, these cats? Um, but you see the seeds of it there. And then when you start linking it more with heresy and you start getting that idea of the sexual nature of it, then they start saying, well, the reason it's sexual is because women are more predisposed to it. Because, you know, if you go back to Greek humoral theory, women are um, considered like damp and cold uh, and men are dry and hot, um, which they then, I don't know how familiar you are with Greek humoral theory, um, uh, you know.
0: I know it, it exists.
1: It's a toolkit in every modern day person's vocabulary. Yeah. Um <laughs> it explains everything, um, but the idea that women were damp and uh, cold means that they were intellectually considered inferior. Somehow that followed from that. And then there's also the idea that because of Eve, um, it all comes back to Eve, women are considered, yeah, it always does, right? Women are considered to be the more libidinous of the two. And so therefore women are not as intellectually intelligent and more predisposed to just you know doing whatever and so if the devil comes up they're easily tricked and they're easily seduced so that's why they argue that women were more often to be considered witches just because (laughs) to boil it down I guess they were too dumb and too into having sex with a demon to know the difference um and Then you transition from that into, well, what do these witches do when they're together? Hmm, let's figure this out. And you have a lot, and I mean a lot, of early demonologists just spending hundreds of pages trying to figure out what these witches are doing together. And Mm -hmm. is it real or is it imaginary are they actually flying there or are they just dreaming that they're flying there and then when they get there what are they doing with each other well when you break it down what's the opposite or the inversion of the good christian woman well eve (laughs) so they're being sexual they're being um obstinate they don't uh follow in line with what the men are telling them and so that leads to all these ideas of which is just stripping naked and dancing and having orgies and all of this crazy stuff that you know <laughs> it's essentially all because of the dichotomy for female role models you're either a virgin mary or you're an eve and there's really nowhere in between right <laughs> and if i'm put up against a woman who somehow became mother to the savior and also remained a virgin her whole life, I think we're all going to fall short. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it, it became just easier to picture a woman being an inversion of a good Christian person than a man, because there's a lot more leeway when it comes to male figureheads and role models and what men are allowed to do than there is women. And that's also kind of what added to the idea of the witch's teat because what's the inversion of good women? Well, you take motherhood and then you take, you know, women breastfeeding their children and you turn it into women, you know, breastfeeding an evil little demon creature. Um, It all is just inversions of traditional gender norms, really.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense and um kind of jives a little bit with the scholarship that i've read on it on the american side too Mm -hmm. um which i've got some books on witchcraft in medieval europe that i are on the list but i just haven't made it to you
1: i'd be happy to send a reading list of recommendations
0: oh please do yeah yeah i have dozens (laughs) yeah um you you had teased us with some werewolf trial stories. So. Oh
1: yeah, <laughs> would you would you like a werewolf? I would story?
0: I would like a werewolf trial. I, story. Um,
1: I, and you know what? I will also throw in a vampire one because I'm well, feeling different. You are really so do. welcome. <laughs> so it's the um,
0: unholy trinity. So
1: <laughs> werewolves, vampires, and witches. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of anything better. Um, so, So there's actually a lot of courtly romances written about werewolves in particular. They became super popular and I I hate to be that person, but like it's very Um, Twilight-esque. Just the idea of like this is a story that like is supernatural, but it's clearly written for a female audience. Mm -hmm. Um, So these courtly romances, they have, um, I think, yeah, it's in uh, some of the stories by Nicole de Pizan, I think, um, but they essentially are these men who, you know, they have their forbidden love, their courtly love, very chaste, everything above board. But then one night, you know, he he tells her like, this can never be, um, you know, there's something you don't know about me. I. I feel like this is describing every, like, romance book ever, um, right. <laughs> but, you know, I I just can't be with you. Don't follow me. Well, of course, the woman follows him, obviously, and she follows him into the woods, and he strips all of his clothes, and he pulls this um, wolf skin out of a tree, and, like, puts it on and turns into a wolf, and he, you know, in some stories, like, he is about to kill her, but then he's overcome by the power of love and he can't figure out what to do. And then sometimes, you know, he ends up being killed. Um, (laughs) I mean, you know, like I said, it's, I hate to be the person to say it's kind of Twilight-y.
0: Right.
1: But but there's that element of romantic, supernatural stories. um, And, you know, (laughs) and the trials are, a lot less dramatic, um, if you can say that about a werewolf trial. Um, maybe my standard for dramatic is really high. Um, but there there are cases um, in like 16th century France, there was one very famous one um, where he believed he was a werewolf and that he was communicating with a demon and he was killing children. And, you know, Now we obviously realize that (laughs) there was something, you know, it wasn't supernatural. He just was, there was something wrong there. Um, But at the time, I mean, he was confessing to being a werewolf, to, uh, you know, transforming, you know, in the light of the moon. Um, And, you know, of course, like full moons and the moon cycle are incredibly important. Right. Not just in witchcraft, but like in general, um, in medieval medicine, even, you had to do things according to astrological signs and according to, you know, well, what phase is the moon in? We can only start treatment when it's in this phase. So it's not something that's just supernatural. But because of the significance of the moon, you know, he's saying all these things, well, I can only do it at night. And then I go out into the village and I kill these children. And of course, I mean, he's put to death because he was killing children, um, but it's just such an unusual record to read through. And I I know that it's on, uh, it's not in full on Wikipedia, but I was able to find it on like an academic site. They transcribed it and you read it and you just, you can see the distinction between like the academic belief in demonology and like the pop culture belief in demonology because what these demonologists are saying is happening is not what the people in the small towns and villages believe two totally different things and it's such an interesting because you have the people interrogating him and asking him who are well versed in the um Academic demonology, and he's like completely confused. He's like, "No, no, no! I just I talked to the devil." And they're like, "But when he came to you, did he come physically, or was he in your mind?" He's like, "I don't know. I talked to the devil. I don't know what you want from me."
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. What well, does it matter? I, just, I yeah. To the yeah.
1: He's like, I don't really see the distinction here. I just talked to the devil. Like, what do you want? I'm telling you, I worship the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like at that point, I feel like it's splitting hairs, um, and then you know, for the, for the fun vampire ones, um, there have been actual like vampire graves and cemeteries that have been unearthed. I'm not sure. Yeah. You're familiar, Yeah, Um, (laughs) but it, it kind of goes, uh, with some later witchcraft belief, especially in England. Um, and I will say there's a pretty big, um, gap between English witchcraft belief and like the continent um england always has to be difficult um, just ask the french in the middle ages right um, <laughs> what about a 100 years war joke wow i'm full of amazing talents um but the vampires you know it was believed that uh well the reason they were finding these so called vampires is a lot of times because of the plague they had to be buried in shallow graves and then once every like once decomposition starts The gums recede. It looks like the fingernails grow because the nail beds recede. Hair looks like it's growing because the scalp recede. You know, and then they were like finding these graves, and it looked like everything had grown. And obviously, there was blood because you know decomposition. Um, And so they find these bodies, and I think it's fair to, if they aren't fully aware of decomposition, to be like, "Um, this person's teeth look bigger and they're covered in blood all over their mouth, what's going on here? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I think that's fair. Um, And so the idea was that you have to either put something solid in their mouth, like a cinder block or a brick, or you bury them upside down Um, because it was believed that they chewed their way out of the grave and that's how they got out. So they, (laughs) it was actually a really popular thing. If you just bury them upside down, they'll just chew their way to hell. Um, and then two birds, one stone. Um, but there was also the belief, you know, if you have witches, you have to, if you end up killing them and they threatened, you know, society, which of course they all were, um, you can bury them on two sides of a river or, you know, something to keep them from coming back together and getting out and seeking revenge. Um, that's why to, to pull in, uh, a fourth member to the trifecta. That's why you have a lot of zombie legends, um, because there were a lot of zombie mythos in the middle ages. Um, there was actually, uh, very popular story in France about an army of the dead that would come back during the mists and like would you know try and take revenge so you know (laughs) there's there's just a lot of concern about what happens to the physical when it's departed and that you see it in the witchcraft you see it in the werewolves the vampires everything it's just there's something going on here it's physical, what is it? So we have to come up with a physical reason.
0: Well, those of my listeners who gained their, you know, uh, cryptozoology degrees from things <laughs> like, um, oh, sh- the Lost Boys or Monster Squad would be asking, how exactly do you execute a werewolf? You have to use silver. <laughs> so, what is this uh, association of silver being like the bane, no pun intended, of werewolves come <laughs> from?
1: So it's actually pretty interesting. And I will tie it back to witches too. Because this there, there's this idea that anything that is pure and holy, that's what you have to have to kill something that is un, you know, elementally unholy. Um, so it didn't start out for werewolves with silver um it started out you know you just had to pierce them through the heart or decapitate them i think in general uh decapitation is always a safe bet uh, and now you know
0: decapitation kills things dead yeah
1: yeah that's uh you know to reference zombie land you gotta double tap um (laughs) (laughs) i love that movie um but there's this idea then that like because these supernatural creatures are the exact opposite of good, holy God-natured stuff, then you have to use that good, holy God-natured stuff to kill them. Mm-hmm. So um that's why I, I'm sure people have seen this uh, if you've seen Monty Python. Uh, that's why uh, swimming a witch was so popular. Um, and that's, for those of you unfamiliar, when you have a suspected witch, um, who turned someone into a newt, but they got better.
0: Uh, better.
1: You, better. um, you take the witch and you put them in a chair, uh, tie them up so they can't swim. And then you dunk them underwater. <laughs> um, oftentimes, because this is in England, this is primarily in England, you know, the rivers are freezing cold. Um, sometimes icy. I mean, I don't know how anyone could really survive through that, but you would dunk the witch. And the idea was if she floated to the top, she was a witch because the water represents purity. You know, it's what we use to baptize people. So if that's how we baptize people, then that's how we know that it's pure, it's holy. So if the water rejects the witch and she floats to the top, then she's a witch, and then, you know, you have your proof, and you can put her to death. But if she, if she drowns, (laughs) or if she sinks to the bottom and doesn't come back up, then she was not a witch, and, you know, she may be, uh, she might die, she might drown, she might have hypothermia, who knows, but at least we know she's not a witch, and that's really the important thing.
0: That that also means that she will go to heaven. So of course, a, yeah. It,
1: you know, it's really they're just doing a kindness. You know? Right,
0: right. <laughs> that's interesting that you talk about the piercing of the heart and beginning, because, of course, we associate that a lot with vampires, mm-hmm. um Dracula, that and Bram Yes, mine too. That that's the one book that I read every year. I, um, I'm
1: currently rereading it right now. <laughs> uh,
0: it it is the time of year that I reread it. it I haven't started good. it. I have but, to. Um, yeah, same. Uh, but, I mean, that's Von Helsing. I mean, the archetypical vampire hunter or demonologist, per se, supernatural hunter. Yeah. Um, that, that's what he prescribes as the way to to defeat the undead.
1: Yeah. And and it's meant to be, you know, it's never meant to be easy. You know, in Dracula, Jonathan just can't bring himself like, oh, it's such turmoil. I can't do it. <laughs> it it's... You know when there's this idea that when you are fighting the supernatural, when you're fighting demons, um, you know you are doing the right thing, but it will be uh, spiritually and emotionally difficult. Um, but then when you come out the other side, you are more godly for the experience. So I, I think go that's back. what my
0: advisor said about writing a dissertation too. <laughs>
1: oh, that one hurts. <laughs> too real. Um, yeah. talk about vampires, okay. that's too real. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's this idea that, you know, if you come out the other end, God has spared you. God has sometimes chosen you um, because there's also this belief, which I think is really interesting. And I don't think people would expect it, but the medieval consensus was that witches existed within the permission of God, because they're kind of in a catch-22. If they say that Satan is creating witches without God's permission, then that's saying that Satan is powerful, or at least more powerful than we want to give him credit for. But then the only other option is that, well, he's creating witches with God's permission. Because Satan can't do anything without God's permission, so then you have this idea of like, man, if God's allowing this to happen, what have we done to deserve it? So it's an interesting. They really back themselves into a corner with that one, yeah. Uh, theologically speaking, I think. Um, but you know, if you allow Satan too much power, then. You become a Cathar, and we know what happens with Cathars. That's and nice Templar.
0: And nice simpler.
1: <laughs> the good old boys.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I toast you, crispy fellows.
1: Ugh, what a shame.
0: It is. Well, I've had you on here for a little over an hour, and that's all I ever ask. It's been a fascinating talk, and this early, really flown by. I could talk to you very easily for another hour, but I'm sure you have better things to do than discuss this with me.
1: You think I have better things to do than talk about witches all day?
0: Um... What? <laughs> <laughs> maybe not i
1: only talk about witches it's october that's all i do for a whole month
0: <laughs> one out of 12
1: yes i i am popular and people think i'm cool one month out of 12 and you know what that's all i can really ask for that's
0: not to say that's better than some people get
1: yeah i get a whole month and you know depending on when the christmas stuff comes into the stores maybe a little less. but i'll take what mm-hmm. i can get
0: Well, that just means you need to, like, start ramping up your Krampus stuff so that you can do...
1: Oh, I am the biggest Krampus fan. Like, I have pictures of me every year with him at the Chicago Christmas market. Like, you know, bringing demons into Christmas. You can't go wrong.
0: You cannot. You cannot. We <laughs> might have to have you back on to talk about the Christmas tea. Oh,
1: Christmas yeah, Christmas. absolutely. Anytime you want to talk about witches, supernatural creatures, you know, I'm always here for that.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I appreciate that. And this has been really fun, Sarah. Uh, yeah, again, many thanks.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. I, I will definitely have you back on um because there's literally, we have basically just scratched the surface and then a, a very basic overview of everything, which I thank you for.
1: My absolute pleasure.
0: <laughs> um please, the floor is yours to promote anything that you're doing now.
1: Uh well, you can follow me on Twitter, uh if you ever just get a hankering for witches, demons, what have you, um occasional Lady Gaga posts. Um it's Sarah Stormborn 9, Sarah with an H, Stormborn as in Game of Thrones. Um I post a lot about that too. Um, and then I'm also, I have my thesis, uh, through the University of Louisville website. It's called the Mark of the Devil Medical Proof and Witchcraft Trials. Um, you know, with the exception of the historiography chapter, it's really good reading and there's pictures okay. <laughs> and you know, if you, if you, uh, during quarantine, if you find yourself needing an editor or a copywriter or anything, let me know. Cause quarantine has me bored.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again. My so- I- Pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Evoking History Podcast.